Bakersoft Story Classic, bringing to you recordings of old storybooks. Mildred Keith, Episode 2 The Striking of the Town Clock The Ringing of Bells The Blowing of Whistles and the schoolboy's glad shout announced the noontide hour. A sound of coming footsteps, of happy young voices, an opening of doors, letting in fresh breezes from without, and with them two bright, blooming, merry little girls, and a lad between them and Mildred in age, in whose great black eyes lurked a world of fun and mischief. Softly, softly, children, the mother said, looking up with a smile as they came dancing and prancing in. Rupert, are you not old enough to begin to act in a rather more gentlemanly way? Yes, mother, I beg your pardon. Yours too, Aunt Wealthy. I didn't know till this moment that you were here. Mother, he's always teasing, complained the younger of the girls. He says we'll have to live in wigwams like the Indians. Rupert, my son, was it quite truthful to tell your sisters such things? I was only making fun, he answered, trying to turn it off with a laugh, but blushing as he spoke. Innocent fun I never object to, but sport is too dearly bought at the sacrifice of truth. My boy, she added with energy, one should go to the stake rather than tell a falsehood, though it were no more than to say that two and two do not make four. Mother, I believe you would, he said, gazing with loving admiration into her earnest face. I've never known you to swerve a hair's breadth from the truth in any way. And coming close to her side and speaking almost in a whisper, I mean to try to be worthy of you in the future. She looked at him with glistening eyes and dropping her work, took his hands in hers for a moment. The others were not listening. Zilla and Ada had caught sight of the new dresses, were admiring them and asking eager questions of their aunt and sister. My boy, Mrs. Keith said in moving tones, I would rather be the mother of a poor, hard-working man of whom it could be said that he had always been perfectly honest and true than of one who had amassed his millions and attained to the highest worldly honors by fraud or questionable deeds or words. Remember that all your life. Mother, I will. I have my father's example to help me as well as yours, the lad replied with a proud glance at the noble, kindly, intellectual face of a gentleman who came in at that instant with fan in his arms and the two little boys gamboling about him. Ah, Aunt Wealthy, good morning, he said in a cheery tone, sitting down beside her, putting Fan on one knee and lifting the babe, who was laughing and crowing with delight at sight of him to the other. I suppose you have heard the news? That you are going to Indiana, Stuart? Yes. You are not contented to let, let well enough alone? Can't consider it well enough to be barely making the two ends meet while a growing family must be constantly increasing my expenses. How's this removal to help you? It will cost a good deal. Nothing venture, nothing have. I'm going to a new country where land is cheap. I shall invest something in that and hope to see it increase largely in value as the town grows. 
Then lawyers are not so plenty there, but that some more will be needed as people move in, and I hope by being on the spot in good season to secure extensive practice. It will cost the sundering of some very tender ties, he continued, his face growing grave, almost to sadness. But we are willing to bear that for our children's sake. Is it not so, wife? And he turned to her with a smile that spoke volumes of love and confidence. Yes, indeed, Stuart, she answered with cheerful heartiness. I shouldn't have hesitated for a moment if I had been quite sure it would be the best thing for them. But as you know, I'm afraid we cannot give them as good of an education there as we might here. However, we have now decided to go, and I can only hope for the best. And do you know, she went on with a smile directed to the corner where Miss Stanhope sat, that since you left us this morning, something has happened that takes away more than half the pain of the thought of leaving Lansdale. No, what, what may that be? Oh, I know, shouted Cyril, turning a somersault on the carpet. Aunt Wealthy's going along. Aunt Wealthy's going along. And then such raptures of delight as were indulged in by those who had not heard the news before. These were interrupted by a summons to the dinner table, but when the blessing had been asked and the plates filled, the talk went on again, though in a somewhat more subdued fashion. Is there absolutely no danger from the Indians, Stuart? asked Miss Stanhope. None, whatever. Most of the tribes have been removed to the far west, all but one, I think, and that will probably be taken soon. What tribe is it? The Watapotamies? Potawatomies, yes. Father, will we have to live in wigwams and dress in skins? asked Ada anxiously. No, we'll have a house if it is only a log cabin, and we'll carry plenty of clothes along. Perhaps they might get lost it on the way, suggested Van. Well, I think we'll find some stores out there, and if everything else fails, we can always fall back on deer skins. Lansdale was but a small town. Everybody in it knew the Keiths or knew of them, and by the next day, after their removal had been decided upon, everybody knew that. Many regrets were expressed, and there were some offers of assistance with their preparations, but these were declined with thanks, with Aunt Wealthy's good help, and that of the seamstress already engaged. Mrs. Keith said she and Mildred would be able to do all that was necessary. They were very busy cutting, fitting, and sewing, day after day, from morning to night, with occasional interruptions from the little ones who were too young to go to school, but old enough to roam over house and grounds, and being adventurous, full of life and energy, were constantly getting into mischief, thus furnishing gratis a change of works to mother and eldest sister, who in spite of a hearty affection for their young was often sorely tried by their pranks. Have you any corn, Mrs. Keith? asked the seamstress one morning. Yes, turning to her work basket. Why, what has become of it? I had two or three pieces here, and that paper of needles has disappeared. Mildred, did you? The children were here half an hour ago, mother, and I remember seeing Donald peering, peeping into your basket. Run out and see what they have done with them. 
Going into the hall, Mildred stood a moment, listening for some sound to tell her where the children were. Little voices were prattling in the garden near at hand. Stepping to the door, she saw the two boys seated on the grass, busied with a kite Rupert had made for them. "'What are you doing?' she asked, going nearer. "'Making a longer tail. Where did you get that piece of string?' No answer, only a guilty look on the two chubby faces. Oh, I know. It's some cord you took from Mother's work basket, and now it's wanted, but you've spoiled it entirely. Why did you cut and knot it so? Why, said Cyril, you see, Don was my crazy man, and I had to tie him, and then I had to cut the string to get it off, because I couldn't untie the knots. Oh, you mischievous fellows, another time don't you take things without leave. Do you, did you take a paper of needles, too? No, we didn't. Maybe Fan did. Mildred went in search of Fan, and found her digging and planting in her little garden, the empty needle paper lying near. Fan, said Mildred, picking it up, what have you done with the needles that were in this? Sewed them in this bed, and when they drove up, we'll have lots and lots for mother and you. You silly, provoking little one. Needles don't grow. Show me where you put them. Tank days all round and round in the ground. Mildred took up a bit of stick and poked around in the fresh earth for a minute or two, then remarking to herself that it was as bootless as hunting in a haystack, went into the house with the report of the hapless fate of the missing articles. The boys were there before her penitently, exhibiting the ruined cord and promising to do so no more. We didn't think, mother, pleaded Don, looking up in her face with such a droll mixture of fun and entreaty in his roguish blue eyes that she could not refrain from giving him a kiss and a smile, she answered. Ah, oh, my boys must learn to think and not take mother's things without leave. Now run away to your plays and try to be good, children. "'Mother, I do think you're a little too easy with them,' Mildred said in a slightly vexed tone. "'Perhaps, but if I made a mistake, is it not far better to do so on the side of mercy than of severity?' "'I suppose so. I shouldn't like to see them whipped.' Then, laughingly, she told the story of Fan's doings, and as needles and cord must be replaced, put on her bonnet, and sallied forth upon the errand." Mildred is one of the prettiest, most accomplished, graceful, and fascinating young ladies of the place, and belonging to one of the first families, was a good deal married, and never lacked attention at a party, picnic, or any sort of gathering of the young people of the town. As she left the store, where she had made her purchases, Spencer Hall crossed the street and joined her. He was the only son of the wealthiest man in the place, and because of his great expectations, looked upon by most of the young girls and their mamas as a desirable match. Mildred, however, was of a different opinion, knowing him to be idle, purse-proud, vain, and conceited. She therefore returned his greeting rather coldly heartily wishing that he had not happened to see her, or that something would occur to rid her at once of his undesirable company. Greatly amazed would the young Esquisite have been could he have read her thoughts, for he had no doubt that she felt highly gratified and honored by his notice. Was he not arrayed in broadcloth suit, silk hat, and immaculate kids? while she wore calico cotton gloves and the simplest of straw bonnets. 
and could not his father buy hers out ten times over. His manner was gracious and patronizing as he remarked, sauntering along by her side. Why, Miss Mildred, can it be true that you are going to leave us? I don't see what Lansdale will do without you. It is quite true that we are going, Mr. Hall, she answered with a slight curl of the lip, and I suppose my father and mother will be missed, but I cannot think that my loss will in any way affect the prosperity of the town or the happiness of the people. Some people's it certainly will, he said with increased graciousness, exerting himself slightly to keep pace with her as she quickened her steps to a very rapid walk. We don't want to lose you. Might it not be possible to persuade you to remain among us? Certainly not, unless my parents should change their plans and decide to stay, of which there is not the least probability. Do you know that you are walking very fast, Miss Mildred, he said, laughing. Do let us slacken our pace a little, for who knows when we may have the pleasure of walking together again. You must excuse me, I am in great haste. But there is not the slightest necessity for you or exerting yourself to keep pace with me. It is broad daylight, and I know the way. Now don't be sarcastic, my dear young lady. I'd be willing at any time to make a far greater exertion for the pleasure of your society. But if we move so rapidly, it will shorten our interview considerably. I have already explained that I am in haste. There is much to be done in the few weeks before we leave, the girl answered coldly, pressing on with accelerated speed. Haven't time even for a word with an old friend, eh? Then good morning, Miss Keith, and turning about in disgust, he sauntered leisurely along in another direction while she sped on her way as before. Is it possible? What does the girl mean? He said the next minute as, on turning his head to look after her, he perceived that Mildred had actually stopped upon the sidewalk, stopped to speak to a mutual acquaintance, a lad a year or two younger than himself, who was working his own way in the world, getting an education by the hardest, and helping a widowed invalid mother. For Frank Osborne, Mildred had the highest respect. Though she looked upon him as a mere boy, and was wholly unconscious that to him she was the embodiment of every virtue and grace, that her words, looks, and smiles were treasured up in his very heart of hearts, nor did she dream how unhesitatingly he would have laid down his life to save hers, had it been in danger. It was only a boy's passion, but it was deep and strong. The news of the intended removal of the Keiths to what in those days seemed a far distant region had been a great shock to him, but with the hopefulness of youth he consoled himself with the resolve to follow and seek her out, when in the course of years he should earn fame and fortune, though she should be carried up to the ends of the earth. His eye brightened at it, and his cheek flushed, and, as on turning a corner, he came suddenly upon her in her rapid walk, and she stopped and held out her hand in friendly greeting. He took it almost reverently. "'How'd you do, Frank? And how's your mother today?' she was saying, her bright eyes looking straight into his. "'Better, thank you, Miss Mildred. And you are well?' "'And, oh, can it be true that you are all going so far away?' he asked with a wistful, longing look. Yes, to the land of the hoisters, wild Indians, and wolves, she said happily. Don't you envy me? 
I envy those that go with you, he answered, sighing. You won't forget, old friends, Miss Mildred. No, no, indeed, Frank, she said heartily. But goodbye, I must hurry home. And with a nod and smile, she tripped away to the satisfaction of Hall, who had jealously watched the whole interview. He was glad it had been no longer, though he could not avoid the unpleasant consciousness that more favor had been shown to that pauper than to himself, the prospective heir to a comfortable fortune. Thank you for listening to another episode of Acre Soft Story Classic. Thank you.